So our scriptures this morning are two. Um, The first is Ephesians chapter 1, which you might have guessed already, since that's where we've been since February. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23, we are picking up sort of in the middle of one of Paul's sentences here, and we're picking up on a theme, and we're going to see that theme reflected by something the Lord Jesus says here in just a moment. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. When he raised him from the dead, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then our second text for meditation this morning is the last few verses of the Gospel of Matthew. You know them well, but you should turn and check and make sure they're still there in your Bible. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Lord, we ask this morning that you would come and in the working of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God together, that you would do whatever it is that you have purposed to do here this morning. You know each and every heart. You know what they need to hear. You know where they need to be encouraged. You know where they needed to be more accurately instructed. You know where they need to be rebuked and corrected, perhaps even sharply. And your Word does that. It is living, it is active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It goes forth, it accomplishes all that you have purposed to do. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So, Father, we didn't come here to hear a man speak. We came here to hear from you. And we believe that when your people are in your house on your day and the man whom you have called takes up your word, that you enter into that. And that whole process becomes something supernatural and divine. So do that now, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to look around at a world, in particular at a Western world, which has cast off God and cast off the knowledge of God and be tempted to despair. 
We are a society that seems to be intent on explicitly enacting almost every phrase in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, which begins by asserting the revelation of the wrath of God against those who would suppress the truth about God that is available to them, and it ends with God's decree that those who do the things that Paul has described in that chapter deserve to die, and the offenders know it, and they keep on doing those things anyway. They do them themselves, but they also egg others on. They cheer others who do them too. And just for instance, within the last 12 to 24 months, as we look around at the English-speaking world, we have street preachers in Great Britain who are being baited when some passerby asks the preacher what he thinks about marriage between persons of the same sex. And when the preacher states the biblical view that marriage is between a man and a woman, the preacher is arrested for breaching the peace and offenses against the public order, and he's taken away. Usually they release him in a day or two, but he's taken away, he's arrested. Uh, at the same time, mobs of left-wingers can tear down all sorts of historical statues with impunity. Nothing happens to them. Muslim groups can uh, do things like groom underage girls for sex in the northern, uh, northern part of England without any police interference, and nobody seems to bother with that. We have a new civil religion that you might call wokeism. It, it prescribes guilt without the possibility of redemption. It offers an inherited sin that can't be erased. It, it has blasphemy codes that will end your career if you break them, even if your offense happened 10 years ago when the code didn't exist and nobody knew about it. They will go and they will dig through old things that you have said until they find something and they will lose you your job and your reputation. Within the last few months in Virginia, a 14-year-old girl was subjected to forcible sodomy in the girl's restroom in her high school by a boy in a skirt. And the boy was moved to a different school where he did the same thing again. In the meantime, the school superintendent publicly lied about the incident at a school board meeting where they rammed through transgender bathroom policy and the girl's angry father was silenced, tackled, bloodied, and arrested while saying that he couldn't breathe. And many in the crowd jeered at him and they made fun of his belly that popped out of his shirt during the arrest. And then the National School Board Administration literally used that man as their poster boy for their request to the President of the United States for FBI involvement in protecting school boards nationwide while they get while they go about the business of poisoning our young people's minds and putting our girls in danger in their own restrooms. And the mainstream media suppress the whole story, of course. And I could go on and on, but I won't. However, it angers me. It's distressing. I worry for my children. And when I look around at the contemporary evangelical church, I see how weak and how silly and how self-absorbed and how ignorant and how worldly the Bible-believing, supposedly, evangelical church is. And I have real doubts about its ability to survive in the face of such things. Because once people who are pushing these things have sufficient power, they will come for us with every means at their disposal 
And you can see a pattern already in place in their intimidation and their aggression. It's pretty clear that our go-to strategy for the last 40 years, which has been electing Republicans, has been totally ineffective. And we find ourselves in precisely the position described in Psalm chapter 11 and verse 3, when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And it seems today that the answer is very little. Perhaps the answer is even nothing. That there is nothing that the righteous can do right now. Perhaps. It is in precisely, precisely in times like this, when we are tempted to fear and anger and despair, that our understanding of Christ and his position, which is described for us both in Matthew 28 and in Ephesians chapter 1, when it's vital for us to understand who he is. Now, the words are not mentioned in the, in the text. The word king is not. But what we are describing here is the kingly office of Christ. And it becomes absolutely essential for us to understand the kingly office of Christ if we're going to proceed with our lives in an orderly, God-honoring, quietly confident way in the midst of the foundations being destroyed. You see, the people of God have been here over and over and over again. I mean, the, the presenting issues are new. But the world has always hated us. Jesus told us it would. The world has always been lost in darkness and sin. Jesus said that it was so. The people of God have always had to worry about being persecuted or being hounded. We're not there yet, so we shouldn't be whining too much. Our brothers and sisters in China and Iran and places like that are having a lot harder time than we are. But you can sense something coming. And it increases anxiety. Frankly, it increases anger. You know, I, here's a way out of that. Honestly, here's a way out of that. I want to start with a text of Scripture for us and center our thoughts on that and then proceed from there in a more topical way rather than an expository way. My thoughts are born both of my own personal studies and devotions, but also uh, in preparation for this sermon, they were, had begun to crystallize around certain ideas. And, and then I went to the Ligonier Conference about a month and a half ago, and I heard Derek Thomas talk on the Great Commission at uh, Ligonier in Pittsburgh. And, and uh, it really cemented my thinking. It really did. And so I'm going to steal a few of his points here at the beginning. So just so you know, I'm, I'm cribbing another preacher's stuff here, and I'm giving due acknowledgement here. And as we turn to Matthew 28, 16 through 20, we find for our purposes today, I want you to home in on a phrase that's often neglected when this passage is preached or studied, and that is verse 18. We see here in verse 18 a massive, massive claim. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is a massive claim to divine sovereignty. All authority on heaven and earth. In, in Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about thrones and principalities and powers. Those are demonic forces. Those are angels that were given rule over certain parts of the creation, and when they fell... They kept their position, and they're using it 
for evil. And they are doing real evil. And Jesus, we are told, is being exalted and his power is above all of those incredibly powerful demonic beings that are running this world behind the scenes. All authority has been given to me. Jesus tells us here that he rules over all. Right now. He has authority over all things. He has authority over the universe you can see. And he has authority over the universe you can't see. Nothing happens without Jesus willing it to happen and willing how it happened. Jesus is in this passage proclaiming his universal sovereignty. Every atom, every electron, every subatomic particle is not simply known to him. It obeys him. He is sovereign over every angel. He is sovereign over every demon. He sets up kings and presidents and prime ministers, and he lays them low whenever he chooses, in the way that he chooses. He has authority over the Chinese government and the U.S. government. Dictators must bow before him. The most rabid, God-hating, Christian-hating, gay activist or transgender activist or Antifa activist cannot even open his or her mouth to curse God except that Jesus grants him or her the gift of breath. And they take that gift of breath from Almighty God and use it to curse God. And God says, you can do that, and there will be consequences. Calvin says somewhere, miserable men take it to act apart from God when they cannot even speak unless he grants it. All things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, were created by him. They were created through him. And they were created for him. The Bible says that clearly. Both Colossians 1.16 and Hebrews 1.3 tells us that he upholds all things in their existence moment by moment by the word of his power. He just speaks and things that are brought into being stay there. And the minute he says, I don't want that to exist anymore, it would fall apart and cease to be. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is kurios. Lord. The word kurios is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which was called the Septuagint, to translate the covenant name of God, Yahweh. The Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, which was Paul's Bible, uses that word as the name of God, Yahweh, kurios, Yahweh. And when Paul writes that, he's talking about the day when all of Christ's enemies will be forced to join the redeemed on their knees and say, Jesus is Yahweh. He has authority over hurricanes. He has authority over volcanoes. He has authority over droughts and floods. He has authority over bad harvests. He has authority over breakdowns in the supply chain. And he has authority over COVID-19. To be on the wrong side of him is the greatest disaster that can befall a created being. To be on the right side of him is the greatest blessing that can befall any created being. 
He answers to no one. He holds the universe in the palms of his hand. His authority is unrelenting. His just judgments are inescapable. His knowledge is complete. Nothing is hidden from him. He has authority over everything in all times and in all places. He has conquered Satan. He has satisfied the wrath of God. He has destroyed death. He has destroyed the works of the devil. As Abraham Kuyper said, there is not one square inch of the universe about which Jesus does not say, that's mine. Not one square inch. That's the claim that Jesus makes here. It is a massive Claim. It is an unrelenting claim. It is a claim with no exceptions. Jesus reigns. He rules. He is sovereign over everything in heaven and everything on earth. He is Pantocrator, the one who rules over all. He is king. So what does a king do? We asked the question this morning in the children's sermon. What does a king do? Well, a king does many things, but they all fall into two basic categories. First of all, a king conquers. He conquers. Second of all, a king rules. And there are two groups of people whom he conquers and rules. His cherished people, bought with the price of his blood, and his enemies. So let's unpack that in the time that we have left this morning, shall we? This blessed king conquers for himself a people for his very own. That's what we've been discovering in all of Ephesians chapter 1. From eternity past, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit held a council. Before there was a world, they agreed together. Perhaps before there were even angels, they made this agreement. Now, I take a position called infralapsarianism that won't even be understandable to very many of you here, but I'm going to present things from that point of view. The triune God created, decreed the creation of the whole lump of humanity that would ever exist. And then he decreed the fall of that whole lump of humanity. And they were all then at that time objects of his wrath and the mind of him who calls things that are not as though they are. And then out of that mass of fallen, damnable humanity for reasons of his very own, which he does not share, he set his electing love on a certain number and said, these are mine. They are his elect. There was nothing special or attractive or meritorious to be found in any of these people at all. As a matter of fact, some of them were especially wicked. Some of them were persecutors of Christ and persecutors of his people. The man who wrote Ephesians was one of those people. And God the Father said, I want these. And he gave those elect to God the Son. And he said, make it happen. And God the Son said, I will ransom and I will redeem them and I will keep them safe in us forever. And God the Holy Spirit said, and I will go to them at the proper time, and I will apply the work of Christ to them, and I will enter them and bring them from death to life, and I will transfer them from the dominion of darkness to the glorious kingdom of his beloved Son. This is called the covenant of redemption. 
You could find all of this information in the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. And you may have to round it out with a little bit of Ephesians 1, but it's pretty easy to do. The best modern treatment that I know of is Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermon series on John 17, which is available freely on the internet if you want to listen to it or if you want to read it. It's published under the title, The Assurance of Our Salvation. What all this means, loved ones, is that every conversion is a blessed conquest in which Christ subdues a man or a woman, not by force, not against our will, but by sovereignly and quietly changing our will so that we do desire to come to him and we do freely choose him where before we didn't desire him and refused to choose him. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, The Magician's Nephew, actually does an admirable job of describing this. If you don't know the story, I'll set the scene for you. Aslan has called the world of Narnia into existence. And there are human beings there that don't quite belong there. And Aslan is wise enough to incorporate these human beings into his plans. And so Narnia then becomes like a new earth. And there are talking intelligent beasts and there are dumb beasts, unintelligent beasts. And then there are these people there that come from our world. One of them is a London cabbie, cab driver. Son, said Aslan to the cabbie, I have known you long. Do you know me? Well, no, sir, said the cabbie. Leastwise not in an ordinary manner of speaking. Yet I feel somehow, if I may make so free, as how we've met before. It is well, said the lion. You know better than you think you know, and you shall live to know me better yet. How does this land please you? Oh, it's a fair treat, sir, said the cabbie. Would you like to live here always? Well, you see, sir, I'm a married man, said the cabbie. If my wife was here, neither of us would ever want to go back to London, I reckon. We're both country folks, really. And Aslan threw up his shaggy head and he opened his mouth and he uttered a long single note, not very loud, but full of power. And Polly's heart jumped in her body when she heard it and she felt sure that it was a call. And that anyone who heard that call would want to obey it and what's more would be able to obey it however many worlds and ages lay between. And so she was filled with wonder but she was not really astonished or shocked when all of a sudden a young woman with a kind and honest face stepped out of nowhere and stood beside her. Polly knew at once that it was the cabbie's wife, fetched out of our world, not by any tiresome magic rings, but quickly, simply, and sweetly as a bird flies to its nest. Anyone who heard that call would want to obey it and would be able to. So Christ subdues to himself his chosen ones as a people for his very own precious possession, and then Christ rules us. Now, it is at this point that we Americans, and particularly early 21st century Americans who've been drinking at the fetid springs of hyper-individualistic, rebellious, arrogant, go-your-own-way, the church exists to please me, evangelicalism, need to sit down and shut up and pay attention, because there is a rebuke and a correction here. 
for all of us. How does Christ rule us? Well, several ways. First of all, he gives us his laws. He gives us his laws. And suffice it to say that Jesus gives us both thou shalts and thou shalt nots. And when he does, they are in complete and perfect congruity with the moral law of God that was given in the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. Kings make laws, and kings enforce their laws. And royal subjects do not defy the the king or his laws. And to defy the king's laws is to defy the king himself. If, If you have trouble with this concept of God, because we, you know, people trot out a scripture, then they twist it out of context. They, we're not under the law, we're under grace. Well, there's a, a truth in that, obviously, because it's the Bible, but what does that mean? It doesn't mean we're free to disobey the moral law of God. It doesn't mean now that I'm a Christian, I can steal with impunity and never have to worry about it. What does it mean? It means you're not under the curse of the law. You're not under the curse that falls on those who are going to live by the law and they must die by the law if they disobey it in even the smallest way. No, no, no. You're not under that curse anymore. And that's what it is to be under grace. And if you have trouble with this concept, I suggest you go to a a website called Lutheran Satire and look for a video called Horace Reads the Internet. It's amazingly clear and concise and quite amazing as well. But our king not only issues laws, our king also appoints men to administer his kingdom. He could rule everything directly. It's well within his power to do so. But he created both angels and men, and he delights to delegate his authority to them in certain areas in order to convey upon his creatures the dignity of useful work in running and ruling the universe and the people of God in his stead. And so in the first century, he created for himself a distinct and unrepeatable office called the office of apostle. This was an office of great power and authority. These men were given the powers to do miracles, to testify to their authenticity. Their words were given a special authority and power in preaching. And their writings have become the inerrant, infallible word of God. These were mighty men, both in word and in deed. But there's something interesting going on here because the apostles also considered themselves elders. If you've got your Bible with you, open it to 1 Peter chapter 5 and you'll see what I mean. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to take a drink of water and give you a chance to flip there. 1 Peter 5. Verses 1 through 5. This is Peter, the Apostle Peter, writing. Listen to what he says. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but by being examples over the flock. And then when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. 
For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves then under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So Peter is an apostle and he could do things that only apostles could do, like write the books of First and Second Peter and have it be scripture. But when we turn to Acts chapter 15, we find that there's something interesting going on. You see, in Acts chapter 15, you have a controversy over the relationship between the new covenant and the ceremonial markers from the old covenant, which were necessary under the old covenant for administration, for admission rather, into the membership of the people of God when the people of God were almost exclusively ethnic Jews. And so you have a question that arises here in this transitional period. And the question is this, should the Gentile converts be circumcised according to the law of Moses and be told to keep the dietary laws and all these other restrictions? Or has Christ's coming and the sacrament of baptism subsumed the requirement for circumcision? It's an important question. And it was a question, that the answer to which was not obvious. And so in Acts chapter 15 and verse 6, it says that this issue was considered by the church in this way. Quote, the apostles and the elders gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? You get the apostles together, and they're not doing it all by themselves. There are other elders there. And in that moment, they don't seem to be functioning apostolically. They're not issuing edicts that are authoritative and binding on the whole church. They're considering things together with the other elders who are not apostles. And they're discussing things back and forth. And they're saying, well, on the one hand this, but on the other hand that. And they're having a real uh, project together to discover the truth of Jesus. Do you see what's going on here? This is essentially the first Presbytery meeting. This is why I'm a Presbyterian. Do you know that God actually has preferences about how his church is set up and run? And we don't get to just decide for ourselves how these things are going to be. We don't take uh, the business world, for instance, as our model. No, the Bible tells us how to run a church. And, And the Bible says you need to have your church structured in such a way because this was in Jerusalem and it was at least the congregations in Jerusalem and there was no way for that many people to meet in one building. So there would be several congregations sending their elders together to get together with the apostles and consider this question. And if you're listening to me from the internet or you're visiting this morning and your church doesn't have a structure like that, maybe your church should reconsider the Bible and adjust its structure accordingly. If you know your Old Testament, you know that Moses appointed elders as a perpetual office to rule Israel. And they were specifically told they weren't to look for a prophet like Moses in every single generation. Uh, They were not to be like the Tibetan Buddhists who are looking for a Dalai Lama every time the old one dies. They were given elders as a perpetual office in the ordinary rule of the people of God, and God has invested those elders with power and with authority. And God set up his church to be ruled by elders and to be administered and cared for by deacons. 
And as I said, since it's impossible that there was only one congregation in Jerusalem, it seems that God intended for each congregation to send some elders who would meet together and who would decide larger, more important issues facing the church, and that that deliberative body had the right to make binding declarations for the whole church. So they get together and they seek the face of God. They don't say they're infallible, but what they, what they say, what they decide upon is binding on the church. And there's a process for going, you know, that might have been a bad idea. Can we reconsider? You, know, you build in the idea that human beings are frail, but that's how it's supposed to work. And the elders in the Bible seem to have two subspecies, those who rule and those who labor in word and doctrine. That's 1 Timothy 5.17. And the scripture, Christ, has given the elders authority to censure unrepentant sinners, including rebuking them including barring them from the Lord's table, including excommunicating them and turning them over to Satan for the destruction of their bodies and the saving of their soul. Now I ask you, is our church effectively functioning in that way? And if we tried to, would you tolerate it? Or would you get your back up and go, nobody tells me what to do? Nobody, hmm, I'm the customer here and I need to be pleased, no. Your sheep under the care of elders who you chose for yourselves. And it's our job to administer Christ's care to you in the way that he requires it. If we don't do that, we're like the weak father who lets his kid get away with murder because he's too lazy or too oh, disengaged or too weak or too afraid to set in motion appropriate boundaries for his child. And that child always ends up a mess because of that. Let me just put some other thoughts in your head here. People show up at our church, and I'm glad that you do. And some of them say, you know, I'd like to be a part of this place. And once again, in general, I'm glad that you do. But as elders, we should understand why you left your former church? Did you leave for a biblical reason? Did you leave in a biblical way? Or were you just tired of the things that were going on over there and wanted to try something new over here? If we're doing our job, we should say, I'm not sure you left in the biblical way for a biblical reason. We're not gonna let you become a part of our church until you go back and at least attempt to reconcile and put things right. And then if they release you from your membership vows, we'll be happy to consider having you as a member here. How many churches even have membership as a category anymore? You know, the Bible actually prescribes church membership because it says, submit to the elders who have been given watch over your soul. That means you come into a formal agreement with them and say, you are my elders and I will submit to you. And you can't do that without membership vows. That's what membership vows are. You see, one of the things that's happening right now, and I've said this before, the evangelical church is shrinking, and we're shrinking because we're not evangelizing. We're not making disciples. And the churches that are growing are growing by accumulating professing Christians from other evangelical churches, and most of those professing Christians left their old church in an unbiblical way for an unbiblical reason. Dallas Willard has said that the, 
that the perverse metrics of success in the evangelical church are what he called the ABCs, attendance, buildings, and cash. And if you think about it and you look at your New Testament, you see that that value system is poisonous to the whole New Testament understanding of the church. And so we have these churches that come along and they hoover up members from other churches and they grow big and, and then sooner or later the whole thing sort of topples because when things get big they get unstable and I have rarely seen a big church that keeps on being big for very long. Usually there's some mess up. And if anything has been taught to us by COVID, it's been that the bigger and more complex a system is, the more fragile it is and the greater the crash is when it crashes. Well, our king has said, no, we're gonna run the church a different way along different rules. Our king subdues us and he rules us. And we should listen to him and we should listen to the agents that he has appointed for that task. But our king doesn't just subdue us and rule us. Our king also defends us. He preserves us. He supports us in our weakness and in our temptations, and in our sufferings. He is gentle, and he is wise. He himself has suffered for his people, but he has also suffered like his people. And we're told that he did that so that we could have a high priest who could sympathize with our weaknesses. We're told that he is so gentle that he won't snuff out a smoldering wick. You know what that means? You, you ever blow out a candle and it's got that one little glowing ember and it just sits there and smokes like crazy and makes you, fills up the whole room with smoke and you're coughing and hacking? And the easiest thing to do is come along and go, psst, and put it out. And the Bible says Jesus is so gentle that he will blow that smoldering wick back into flame so that it's bright and healthy again. We're told that he won't break the bruised reed. You know, a reed has got a stiff sort of structure to it, but it's hollow, and if you break it, it's kind of like when you bend a straw at McDonald's. That straw is never gonna be right again, right? And a reed's the same way. If you, if you bend it, it's never gonna be right again. All the, all the tubules that take the, the nutrients up to the leaves are blocked now, and they're messed up. And it says that rather than just breaking that off and calling it a loss, that Jesus puts it back together and he binds it up carefully so that the plant can live. Some of you, some of you are smoking wicks. Some of you are deeply bruised reeds. And your king is tender for you. He sympathizes, he supports you. He binds you up and he strengthens you with his outside support. He may correct you, he may discipline you, but it's not because he hates you, it's because he loves you. It actually says in the scripture that Jesus orders all things for the good of his people and the glory of his name. But this king who is so gentle with his own beloved people is also terribly fierce and terribly mighty and to be on his bad side is a terrible, unutterably horrible thing. His holiness and his justice and his wrath are relentless. His judicial hatred for the reprobate and his vengeance are perfect 
and they are exactly at the right time and in the right way, even if it seems slow to us. He will cast Satan and the demons and all the reprobate who are by definition and default worshipers and servants of Satan, even if they aren't aware of that fact, he will cast them all into a lake of fire that will burn and torment but never consume and never annihilate them, and it will be forever. And that is a sobering, sobering thought. He has fixed a day upon which he will judge the whole earth, and no one will escape. Clever, arrogant, foolish men have used various schemes to deny this fact, to deceive themselves and to deceive others, but it is unavoidable. That day will come, and we will all stand before him, the righteous and the unrighteous, the just and the unjust, the elect and the reprobate. We will stand before him, and we will all give an account Now, it's going to be different if you're elect. The outcome is going to be different. And what you're being judged for in that case is treasure. It's treasure in heaven. But if you're on the wrong side of him, oh, not a good place to be. Not a good look. Satan shudders when he contemplates that day. The demons tremble when they contemplate that day. Satan's wrath grows hot because he knows his time is short and he's being boxed in and he's trying to do everything he can to mess up God's work and his people in the short time that he has left just because of his hatred, just because of his spite. Whatever evildoers are able to accomplish in this world only comes at the permission of Jesus Christ. And we are told in the scriptures that that permission is granted for our good and for his glory. Those who do those things will not escape. They will not. And we must pray for them. And we must evangelize them with the true gospel. We must tell them the truth. The true gospel is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The true gospel is that the wrath of God abides upon you for your sin. You are in the hands of an angry God and the only hope of escape is to come to Jesus in repentance and faith. The true gospel is Psalm 2. Kiss the son lest he be angry at you in the way. The true gospel is that the wrath of God abides upon sin. And you won't escape if you're still in your sins. And the only hope to escape is to come to Jesus in repentance and faith, to believe on him and to receive salvation from him, and then to follow him for the rest of your days. And if not, prepare to meet thy God with thy sins still on thine head. And woe to you, be afraid, be very, very afraid. That is the gospel. That's how it was preached in the book of Acts. Go and look at every single sermon, evangelistic sermon in the book of Acts, and and go, go see how the gospel was preached. It started with the judgment of God. It starts with, there's this God that you might not have heard of. He's the true and living God, and he's mad. And he's mad at all the sin in the world, and you're included in that. And now he offers the opportunity to escape the consequences of that through this man, Jesus. Would you like to meet him? 
That's how the gospel was presented 100% of the time in the book of Acts. Go look, for instance, in Acts chapter 24, Paul before Felix and Drusilla. Felix was the Roman governor. His wife was a Jewess. They had Paul in the basement in prison because the Pharisees had trumped up charges against him. This is before he goes to Rome as a prisoner because he appealed to Caesar. And they call Paul up. They want to hear him give a sermon. And the, the Bible says he gave them a sermon, and he gave them a sermon about faith in Christ Jesus. And it was a three-part sermon. Three points. First point, righteousness. The righteousness of God. The holiness of God. Righteousness. And the second point was self-control, how human beings don't obey the laws of righteousness and therefore are under his curse because they lack any kind of self-control that would be appropriate to a redeemed creature. And the third point is the judgment to come. And the judgment to come was given. That, that three-part sermon was preached to a man who was a crook, who had been born a slave and had clawed his way up into the limelight. And it was said of Felix that with the disposition of a slave, he executed the powers of a king. And one of the things he did was to steal Drusilla away from her husband with the help of a Cypriot magician named Simon. And they were sitting there in an adulterous relationship. And everybody knew it. It wasn't a secret. And here comes Paul with his little three-part sermon, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, until Felix is afraid and says, that's all for now. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you again. Now, let me tell you, just, uh, I think it was last weekend, last Friday, I took my kids to the exhibit in Pittsburgh at the Carnegie Science Museum, the exhibit of Pompeii. The, uh, the artifacts, if you don't know the story of Pompeii, it was destroyed by, Mount, by a volcanic eruption from Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD, and the whole thing was just covered with ash. And it was lost to history until it was accidentally rediscovered in the 1800s. And as you go around, you could see the artifacts that these people made, the things that they valued. There were beautiful paintings that had been on wall plaster that they'd managed to take off and stabilize. There were these wonderful little mosaics made with colorful tiles. There were artifacts from daily life, combs and... and uh, and metalwork, and, and even like a, like a fire pit, a brazier for coals, and it had like little claw lion feet. Everything was just exquisitely and beautifully made. And then right at the end, you go into the room where you see the bodies, the bodies of the people who were there and who were buried on that day by hot ash. And the one that struck me the most was the figure of a man who was sitting with his back against a wall and his knees up and his elbows resting on his knees and his hands covering his face as though he was weeping for eternity. Drusilla was at Pompeii with her son. It was gala night, according to the historians. She was beautifully bejeweled and decked out and there was dancing and laughter and in a roar Vesuvius erupts and swallows Pompeii and swallows Drusilla whole. And in a moment, she went from dancing to judgment. No time for the crazy little Jewish man and his righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. We're having a party here tonight, and then all of a sudden, the party comes to an end.
and Priscilla moved from dancing to judgment. Each one of us will make that move too. Are we ready? If Christ is truly our king, we will be. He will subdue us and rule us and care for us and we will be at rest in him forever. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. You are my rock and my redeemer.